You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto thee, O Lord, my helper and redeemer. You may be seated. First, I am very, very grateful to be here to be part of this great Lenten service. And in particular, here on this one of these great holy days of the Christian calendar, Monday, Thursday. I want to look at several important events during Jesus' life on Thursday of Holy Week. In particular, I want to examine the various prayers Jesus gave during that eventful day. What we will see is that Jesus' mission and work are expressed and embodied in three different prayers associated with events leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. Early on Thursday, perhaps in Bethany, Jesus sends Peter and John into Jerusalem to secure a room for the celebration of the unleavened bread, Passover. After eating the Passover meal and ritualistically following the commemoration of the Exodus with his disciples, he took a piece of bread and according to Matthew and Mark, he blessed it and gave it to his disciples as his body. He then, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, took a cup and gave thanks for it and passed it as his blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. There are two prayers. Christ blesses the bread. To bless something is to set it apart and to give a degree of divine presence of holiness to it. By his prayer, Christ confers divine holiness onto the ordinary bread. And furthermore, he calls it his body. Because of the efficacy of Christ's prayer, the bread stands in the place of Christ's body, which he will suffer in the days ahead. By taking of the bread, the disciples thus participate in Christ's redemptive work. Also, Christ gives thanks for the cup. The word in Greek is Eucharisto, which our word Eucharist comes from, which describes the whole of the event. Of course, Jesus is giving thanks to God the Father and the mission given to him. He likens the cup to his blood, which must be shed for the forgiveness of sins. By giving thanks to God the Father, Jesus accepts his destiny his work to suffer as the innocent one for the guilt and punishment of the guilty. He gives the prayer without pause or equivocation. However, hours later we hear a different kind of prayer from Jesus. After foretelling of his betrayal by Judas and of Peter's three denials, Jesus takes his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, and after separating himself, he prays to God, the Father, Remove this cup from me. Earlier, he had been thankful to accept the cup, accept the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of sins. He had enveloped the whole mysterious moment with his confident and courageous accepting of what lay ahead for him, his cup. But now, Jesus demurs. The gospel writers do not tell us why. Maybe Jesus dreads the excruciating pain. Maybe he feels the sins and horrors of the world would be greater than what he could endure. Maybe he fears that the cup would entail 
being abandoned by not only his disciples, but by his God, the Father. We do not know. Regardless of the reason, we see an exchange in interaction between Jesus and God the Father. We witness an intensely personal and agonizing relationship between them. We hear a truly heartfelt prayer for reprieve. Jesus' prayer is not merely directing thoughts towards God. It is enacting a living and dynamic relationship between himself and God the Father. Yet, Jesus follows this plea of reprieve with, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. Jesus accepts his destiny and joins his will with the Father's. The two wills meet in one prayer. The Father's will for Jesus to bear the cup of salvation becomes united with Jesus' will to fulfill his calling as the Son of God. One mission, two wills. Admittedly, it seems difficult to connect these prayers. The ones associated with the Lord's Supper are competent and proud. The one at Gethsemane is doubtful and troubling. It may be that we could say that the prayers of the Lord's Supper represent the divine side of Christ, while those of Gethsemane represent the human side. The deity of Christ would never doubt his mission, but the humanity of Christ would reluctantly embrace it. In this sense, there are two wills at work in Jesus, a divine and a human. And on this Thursday, the two wills are in conflict. However, this would be an erroneous interpretation. It would assume that since a will represents a personal identity, Jesus would actually be two persons, one divine and one human. The conflict then would be, in fact, between two different people. Yet the scriptures never present Jesus as two persons. And such a dualism of persons was rightly rejected by the Council of Nicaea. Prior to the famous council, much of Christendom was split between two rival theological camps. A very influential deacon of Alexandria, Egypt, named Arius, was saying that Jesus was not actually identical with God the Father, but only similar. He used the word homoousia to express this similarity. In contrast to Arius, there was Athanasius, also of Alexandria, who said that Jesus was the same as God the Father. And he used the word homoousius. Although their positions were separated only by the little iota vow, their views are radically different. Arius thought that since God only is God and a person cannot become God, Jesus cannot be co-substantial with God the Father. Jesus may suggest to us the divine nature, may represent God to us, but Jesus is not fully divine as God is divine. However, Athanasius knew Arius must be wrong. The apostles never equivocated about the total unity of Jesus with God the Father. Even though the apostles recognized the full humanity of Jesus, such recognition never diminished the conviction that Jesus was indeed the Word made flesh, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and that Christ truly died on the cross and was raised from the dead as the reigning Lord who is at the right hand of God the Father. Under the summons of Emperor Constantine in the year 325, approximately 300 bishops 
and 1,500 other attendees met at Nicaea and concluded that Athanasius' position represents the orthodox belief for the church. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. In this light, we should say that even though Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane appears to have the wavering doubts of a human, the prayer is as fully reflective of Jesus' divinity as his prayer of blessing and thanksgiving at the Lord's Supper. The prayer between Jesus and the God the Father reveals the very nature of God. God prays and is active in blessing and working the cup of salvation throughout the world and all ages. Jesus continues to minister and offer the cup of redemption to all places of human ruin, despair, and moral darkness. And in each instance, Jesus is offering his cup to God the Father, praying to God to bring holiness, healing, and reconciliation into the world. Thus, we should think that what we learn about Christ on this Thursday of Holy Week is that there is the intimate connection between the prayers of Christ and the continual work of Christ's cup, the salvific work to restore the lost and mend the broken world. This connection between the divine praying and salvation influenced the way the apostles thought of the unity of the Trinity, of what made the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit one God. For instance, When the Apostle Paul explains the security and reality of salvation with God in Romans chapter 8, he makes the following extraordinary observations. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercessions for the saints according to the will of God. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercessions for us. Paul contends that our prayers are taken up by the Spirit and Son and brought to God so that God's will may be done. The sequence is this. We pray. The Son and Spirit pray our prayers. And the Father receives those prayers and works the divine providential will according to those prayers, those intercessions. I definitely think that God works the divine will for many reasons and in many ways. For instance, in restoring creation to be a new heaven and a new earth. But the logic of Paul's verses is that our prayers actually influence and affect the will of God. Yet we must be careful to note that the will of God is not done simply to accommodate our requests and petitions. Rather, the will of God is done in accordance with the joining of our petitions to the intercessory prayers of the Son and spirit. It hence follows that the more we pray, the more we give content 
to the intercessory prayers of the Son and Spirit. The more we give our hearts in prayer for the lost, grieving, anguishing, oppressed, corrupted, plighted, miserable, sick, and dying, the more the force of our hearts are brought to bear within the prayers of the triune God. I believe it is right to think that the prayers of a righteous person availeth much, as James says. And that this is true because the more we pray, the more God prays the prayers that sets the condition for the divine providential will to work in the world. There is an ancient legend first mentioned by Pseudo-John of Damascus in the 1100s that one day St. Gregory the Great, the 6th century pope, was passing through the plaza of Trajan, named after the 2nd century pagan Roman emperor, and remembered the account of the emperor helping a widow and others with his good deeds. And St. Gregory's heart grew sorrowful for Trajan, who had died as a pagan and was in hell. He faced towards the church of St. Peter and prayed for God to be merciful on Trajan in Hades. And as the legend says, at that moment God heard St. Gregory's prayer and was moved by Gregory's heart and raised Trajan from the damnation of Hades. I am not pretending that this story is more than a legend, but I do think it has value as a parable. The story tells a similar truth that we've learned above, the openness of God because God prays. God takes into God's very being our prayers, and these prayers enter into the triune praying relationships of Spirit, Son, and Father. Because we know God prays, we know that our prayers can be and will be answered by the intercessions of the Spirit and Son. The great 13th and 14th century Italian poet and theologian Dante used this story of St. Gregory and the Emperor Trajan to teach an important lesson about prayer. In Canto 20 of the Paradise, the third part of the classic, The Divine Comedy, Dante is passing through the sixth sphere where the just and temperate rulers of Christendom exist, being led by the eagle, a symbol of all the blessed saints. Dante sees the pagan Roman emperor Trajan standing among the Christian saints and astonishingly asks the eagle, how can that be? And the eagle answers, The kingdom of heaven suffers itself to be moved from living hope and burning charity that overcome the will of the divine, not as a man may overcome another man. The divine wins because it would be one. And one, it wins with its benignity. I think Dante is right. The divine wins because it would be one. God's will redeems the depraved and destitute of the world by the effective work of Christ's cup, the power of salvation, which he continually offers at the right hand of God the Father. In this prayer of the cup, Christ takes our prayers and offers them to God. 
The prayers of the saints fill the heart of God and move God to heal and forgive the lost world. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven because we know that our prayers our living hope and burning charity through the intercessions of the Spirit and Son suffer heaven to be moved. The divine wins because it would be won with all the charity possible in your hearts. Pray for justice, hope, healing, victory over death, rescue of the lost, the witness of the church, peace among peoples and nations, comfort for the orphans and widows, glorious beauty to shine throughout the world, the end of wars and hunger, and the coming of the Lord. O oh God, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Hear our humble prayers. We all face Thee, admitting we do not know how to pray to our Creator and Redeemer. So pray for us, our God. Bear the cup of salvation. Add our petitions to Thy intercessions. Allow us to approach Thee boldly and to overwhelm mercy itself. Pick up our feeble hearts and conjoin our prayers with Thine. Pray on, O great Lord. Pray on. Take our hearts with Thee into the rooms of grief and loss and bring healing and health to the wounded. Carry our hearts with Thee into the far country and find our children and bring them home. Add our hearts to Thy mercies and defend the poor and the miserable and give them fairness and security. Conjoin our prayers with Thee and go and give hope and respect to those mired in the guilt, shame, and pain of our prisons. Allow us, O great Lord, to march with Thee through the valleys of death, the alleys of cruelty, the canyons of hatred, and through the dungeons of life's anguish, so that we may lift high thy cup, thy redemptive love and forgiveness. Pray on, O Lord. Hear our prayers in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.